Good morning. It's great to be here. So thankful to be here, and uh, thank you for your kind words, David. And uh, just thankful for the partnership that we have in the Champaign-Urbana community with All Souls Church, and just with the many churches that we have here um, at Covenant Fellowship. We really see this as partnership, not just our church, but just what we're doing here in this community and across this world too. I love the fact that uh, our brother Ben prayed for for the world and that that's what your, your church is doing. Um, yeah, if you could turn with me to John chapter 4, going to be looking at verses 20 to 26, and the title for this morning's message is The Thirst to Worship. John chapter 4, verses 20 to 26. Um, <coughs> it's the Word of God. It states, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will teach us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's the word of God. As we look at this passage, this one thought came to mind. Just, just this thirst. Uh, just about thirst. Because uh, it, thirst is an interesting thing to think about. And it's something that commonly comes up in this passage. Thirst. Everybody has this physical thirst about them. Babies, right? Babies, babies, they get thirsty, even from an early age. If they don't get fed their milk, then they cry all night long. If you didn't know, um, I am 39 years old. I know I don't look 39, I'm 39 years old, and I have four children. A lot, of, so I've experienced the thirst of my children, how they wake up in the middle of the night and I nudge my wife. No, I'm kidding. You know, <laughs> but we all get physically thirsty, um, and that's what keeps franchises like Starbucks alive. Or if you're a little bit younger, Sonic Drive-In, right? Um, but we also have this spiritual thirst as well within us. We have this thirst, existential thirst for significance. It's not just a physical thing, but we also have this innate existential existential thirst about us for significance um, and that's why for younger even younger people they have this thirst for significance as we talk about franchises like Starbucks because of our thirst for significance we keep franchises like um, Instagram Facebook so on and so forth alike because people they post pictures up and they're not satisfied unless people like it Right? And if your friend doesn't like it, hey, why, did you see that picture? Yeah. Then why didn't you like it? Are you really my friend? We have this thirst for significance. Ravi Zacharias, great apologist, he said this. He said, no matter how much we try to run away from this thirst for the answer to life, for the meaning of life, the intensity only gets stronger and stronger. We cannot escape these spiritual hungers. Because every single being is a thirsty soul. 
And that's what we see in this passage, this theme of thirst. But as Jesus talks about thirst with the Samaritan woman, he connects it with worship. It's interesting. Because in the Gospel of John, now we're in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, but this is the first time that the word worship appears in this Gospel. The word worship appears 11 times in the Gospel of John. And even with, within these seven, six verses, 20 to 26, it appears nine times. Nine out of 11 times in the whole book of John, the word worship appears. I think what Jesus is doing intentionally here, he's saying we're thirsty to worship. We're thirsty to worship something significant. We all are worshipers. And the crazy thing is, sometimes we worship that which we think is significant, but objectively, it is not. And it's not just for unbelievers. Unbelievers, they're all searching for what is significant, but it's also for believers. We know that which is significant, that which deserves our worship. But so often, we drink from the wrong river. So often, we forget that the greatest place that we could quench our spiritual thirst is at the cross of Jesus Christ. So this message is for all of us this morning. Three things that we're going to see from this passage. First of all, the invitation to worship. Secondly, the confrontation of worship. And lastly, the satisfaction of worship. The invitation to worship. We'll start there. What we see here in this passage is that Jesus invites the Samaritan woman to worship because Jesus loves to invite in verse 4 of this passage, it says, the, the Apostle John, he says that, and he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now Jesus, he had just finished, he just left the region of Judea to go to Galilee. And it says that he was baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. And he had to leave Judea because, of, because all the Pharisees heard about Jesus. And they wanted to crucify him. But it wasn't that time yet for Jesus to be crucified. He had more to do in this life, in his ministry. So Jesus, he had to leave that region. So he decides to go up to Galilee. Now, the road from Judea to Galilee, the most direct path heading north, passed through Samaria. But the Jews often took a longer route. They went the roundabout way because of their hatred for Samaritans. See, Samaritans, they were half-breeds. They were half Jews and half another ethnicity. And as a result of this, their religion, their purity, spiritual cleanliness was compromised. So the Jews hated that so much, hated Samaritans so much, they took, that they took the roundabout way. But Jesus, in verse 4, it says that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, it may seem like Jesus is lazy here. Don't call Jesus lazy. But it may seem, oh, he's just taking the shorter route because it's just quicker. But this had to is not a had to of convenience, but it's a had to of love. It says in this passage that Jesus was weary from the travel and he sees a Samaritan woman coming. But he initiates a conversation with her. See, when you're tired, one of the last things that you want to do is talk to somebody. Have you ever been there? But Jesus, he initiates a conversation with this woman because he loves to invite. Do you know people that love to invite? People that love to host? You know, they're the, they're the weird breed of human beings. They love, they love to feed people, and they love to, they don't mind the cleanup afterwards. 
right? I love those people. <coughs> they love to invite. And oftentimes, they'll invite their friends or their neighbors, <coughs> people that they may know. But the great thing about Jesus is that Jesus, he invites the unexpected. He invites a Samaritan woman. It was so unexpected that Jesus would initiate this conversation with the Samaritan woman that the Samaritan woman, she verbalizes her shock too. In verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Wow, she's baffled by this. Why? Because as stated earlier, Jews despise Samaritans. They try to stay clear of Samaritans. She knew that Jesus was a Jewish man and that she was a Samaritan woman who was unholy. But Jesus still interacted with her. And on top of this, Jesus is talking to a woman. In that context, in that society, men would rarely talk to a woman in public because women were not valued as highly as men. But Jesus, he's not like most men. And on top of that all, this woman came at the sixth hour, which made at noon the hottest part of the day. I love the fact that you guys are worshiping a little bit earlier, right? You guys are very wise and smart. But this woman, she worshipped, she came to this well at the hottest part of the time of the day because she didn't want to interact with anybody else. She knew that most women, they would come into groups, come in groups to this well, either earlier in the day or later in the day, partly to get the water and partly to socialize. But she didn't want to see anybody because she knew that she had her sins and she knew that she'd be rejected by these people. But Jesus, he's not like most people. Even though Jews would reject her, even though men would reject her, even though even Samaritan women would reject her, Jesus, he invites her to worship because Jesus just loves to invite people, even the unexpected. See, in this passage, we see that Jesus, he broke ethnic norms, cultural norms, gender norms, and even moral norms as he spoke to this woman because he loves to invite anybody that is willing to worship him. And that's helpful for us because sometimes we may feel too sinful to come to him. We may feel like other people, they may reject us. But I think what this passage is saying is always come to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what this communion is telling us. Always come to the cross of Jesus Christ because he will never reject you. Keep on coming to him. No matter how you feel, no matter what other people say, he invites you to worship him. But as he invites us to worship him, there's a confrontation of worship. There is. That's what we see in this passage. The confrontation of worship, that Jesus confronts what we worship. So as Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, he starts talking about water, a thirst. And I don't think that's a mistake. <clears throat> he says in verse 13, as he speaks to this woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Because thirst comes from a desire. The reason why the baby wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning is because they have that desire, a physical desire, to... You know, for that, for that milk. But also, sometimes they actually get fed and they're not completely satisfied. 
Part of the reason, maybe it's because of their selfishness too. Wow, wow, wow. I went with my kids to St. Louis this past weekend and uh, man, my kids, they always fight all the time. The kids here are so beautiful. You guys are so well behaved. You guys are like angels. My, I love my kids too. They're like angels, but sometimes they're not. Because <clears throat> we all have desires in our hearts too. Jesus, he's connecting thirst to desire. And this woman, she was thirsty, not only physically, but she also had a relational thirst too. In this passage, the reason why she doesn't want to go earlier in the day or later in the day is because she wanted to avoid social confrontation. That's why. She wanted that social relief. But at the same time, she wanted relational acceptance. Jesus, it seems like he goes on a tangent here in verse, eight, verse 16. After he talks about water, he says to her, Go, call your husband and come here. See, do you know people that go on tangents, they, they switch subjects like just out of nowhere. And it may seem totally random. Jesus, he switches subjects here, but it's not random. Because he knows us completely. And he is confronting her worship. He's confronting her thirst for satisfaction within these husbands. And it starts to get really testy. See, because confrontation, sometimes, they hurt. And it hurt this woman. Because Jesus, she wanted to hide this fact. I mean, because this woman wanted to hide the fact that she was looking for significance within all these husbands. So he says, right, go call your husband and come here. And then she answers him in verse 17, I have no husband. And he comes right back at her. He says, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, we don't know all the circumstances behind why this woman had five husbands. Maybe they all legitimately died. Maybe they all died and she got remarried. But maybe that wasn't the case. And in that case, if she got divorced, a lot of people would see her as morally unclean. Jesus gets into a sensitive subject. But what we do know in this case is that at least the person that she's with is not her husband. She's in a significant relationship with this person. Some commentators say that uh, this woman is, is sleeping with this man. And Jesus, he points out what you have said is true. Who you are with is not your husband, but you're with him. That's a sore spot. Have you ever felt that before? When you come to worship, and maybe Pastor Luke, he's preaching the word. He's just preaching the word of God. And as he's preaching, you're like, oh, that hurts. Pastor Luke, are you really trying to offend me right now? I thought this was an all souls church. It's an invitation to worship. Don't get mad at him. <laughs> the confrontation may hurt, but we must remember whenever there's confrontation, it's meant to heal. Jesus, he's a great physician. He's like the doc a doctor. Doctors, sometimes, they hurt you. But their intention is never just to hurt you, it's to heal. Sometimes they'll prod you, prick you. Sometimes they'll do those things. But the end goal is for healing. And sometimes the deeper the pain, 
right? The deeper the pain, the deeper the healing. And that's what we see in this. Jesus' intention is to heal this woman. And what we see, because of this confrontation, in verse 19, this woman realizes that Jesus, he's not like other men, any other person. He says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This healing process begins because there's healing when there's revealing. There's healing when there's revealing of the source of our problem. This woman, within her husband, trying to find satisfaction within all these husbands. Love in wrong places. But there's healing when there's revealing of the solution of the problem. Sometimes people want to get to the solution without seeing the source of the problem. And I think that's sometimes the case for us. We just want the quick healing. But we first got to see the source of the problem. That's why Jesus confronts us. But he confronts. It may hurt, but it's meant to heal. He helps us see the source of the problem. Um, did you know that Alaskan hunters can capture a wolf in a manner by which the wolf undoes itself? See, the hunter will stick a knife covered in frozen blood in the snow, blade up, and the wolf will smell the blood from a distance and will start coming and will lurk. And then finally, will lick that blade and taste it. This is what I like. And as it tastes it, keeps on getting more and more addicted and will keep on tasting it, licking it, licking it, licking it, licking it. And it's frozen. And as it's frozen, its tongue will get more and more numb to the point when it will lick off all the frozen blood. But will the wolf stop? No. It'll lick one more time, even though there's no frozen blood. And soon, it won't realize that now it's cut its own tongue. And now it's no longer tasting the frozen blood, but now tasting its own blood. But the wolf will not stop, but it'll continue, 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 until the morning comes. The Alaskan hunter will come and will find around that, that dagger a wolf right there, covered in its own blood. See, one of, the, one of the things that you could do to help that wolf is to tell that wolf, hey, that frozen covered dagger, that, that blood covered dagger, that's not good. Take it away, wrestle it away, but the wolf might growl at you, might bite you. You may think you're trying to hurt me. You're, you're trying to take away what is my life. But you want to take it away. Because there's no healing without revealing of the source of the problem. Sometimes for us, <clears throat> our dagger in our society, in our context, um, is what we have access to. See, in third world countries, sometimes their difficulty in life is what they do not have access to. I've been to many third world countries, and it's heartbreaking. Sometimes they don't have access to food. Sometimes they don't have access to the Word of God. Sometimes they don't have a lot of access to things. But here in America, sometimes our problem, our undoing, is not our underconsumption of what we need, but our overconsumption of what we think we need. And because of that, it hurts us. It leads to addiction. It leads to satisfaction in the wrong place. And that's a scheme of the devil. 
the devil just wants to, he knows that he's not going to win in the end. He knows that Jesus has won the ultimate victory. But the devil, he's kind of like the Chicago Cubs back in the day. The Cubs are good now, but when the Cubs weren't good, they would still try to win every single day. When they played the, the, the St. Louis Cardinals, their, their hated rival, they wanted to win to hinder the, the glory of the Cardinals. And they would do anything possible to do that. Satan knows that he's going to lose. But he wants to do anything to hinder the glory of God, to keep us from worshiping him. So whether it's <clears throat> um, distracting people from going to church, worshiping God, whether it's through drugs, whether it's through false religions, or whether it's through not going to church because you're distracted by going to a baseball game. Satan's happy. Now, we're not saying that baseball games are evil. What we're saying is, in order for there to be healing, there has to be confrontation to see the source of the problem. And as Jesus shows this woman the source of the problem, he shows a solution to the problem, the satisfaction of worship. That Jesus, he is the one that satisfies. As this woman and Jesus converse, they start talking about location first. This woman, she says that worship, we worship here on this mountain. You Jews worship here. But Jesus is saying worship's not about location. He's saying about worship, it's about a person. And that it's satisfied through a person. And in verse 25, the woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And I love that. Because whenever we come to worship, wherever we're at, that's what Jesus is saying to us. I who speak to you am he. He is the ultimate satisfaction of worship. That as this woman was running around from husband to husband to husband, what she was longing for is this satisfaction in Jesus. And how does Jesus satisfy? Jesus satisfies the wrath that we deserve. As Jesus talks about in this passage, the hour has not come yet for me to die on the cross. The hour, first of all, he needs to negate the wrath that we deserve. He satisfies the consequence for our sins. But he not only negates, but he also propels us forward towards what really satisfies. He is the living water. He is what we are thirsty for. He says, I who speak to you am he. He is the lover of our souls. He is the living bread. He is what our hearts are craving for. And as he has negated the wrath that we deserve, he's telling us to keep on living for him. Jesus, when you are satisfied in Jesus Christ, that satisfaction creates more desire for Christ. That's a beautiful thing about knowing Jesus Christ. It's not just about getting into heaven, but while we're here on earth, knowing him more being sanctified in him more, seeing that he is the Holy One, as we get to know him more and more, as we read, worship him, all these things, he is the one that we're longing for. And it creates a deeper, longer thirst 
for him. How do we get our desires satisfied in him? Well, well, it's hard because we still have that rival desire of sin in our hearts. That we have the spirit within us longing for Christ, but we have a desire for sin in our hearts still. Rival desires. What do we have to do? Keep on feeding the spirit of Christ within you. I think Jesus helps us. <laughs> he helps us by teaching us how to do it. Verse 24, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Must worship in spirit and truth. That you need to get the truth of God's word. But it's not just a cognitive exercise. The spirit, too. Because every theologian may not be a Christian. You worship the God. You get to God's word. But through his spirit, meaning this, you have the spirit's nature implanted within you. And you worship him. As you sing songs, as you pray to him, you worship him. You keep on going through that. And how do we do this? Well, he says must worship. I think it's through discipline. Discipline of keep on coming out to the word of God. Keep on coming to worship. Discipline, and then eventually leads to delight. That's the key to every single athlete that is a great athlete. Sorry to say, if you're not a LeBron James follower, lover, I really am not. But one thing that I do know about him is that, man, he's a great athlete. Because he has great discipline. And he is able to know what to do. He, he is a genius in terms of knowing how to play the game of basketball. He has discipline. But it's because he's going for that delight. I think the same thing for us in, in our relationship with Christ. We must worship him in spirit and truth. Discipline, getting to the word of God. Prayer, this discipline. But why? Because <laughs> we get that taste of delight every single day. We may not feel like it, but we do receive it. And sometimes that's what I go through. Um, I'll tell you honestly. <laughs> I hope I could be honest. But I don't always love to pray. <laughs> I don't always love to read the Bible. Um, but I love the fact that Christ still invites me. But as I still go through that discipline of praying, even though I may not like to do it initially, as I pray, I do get to that place of delight eventually. And sometimes, honestly, I do not get during that time to that place of delight. Well, what I know, the truth, is that that discipline, as I focus on Christ, as I love Christ, it is going to lead to more of Christ in eternity. To become worshipers in spirit and in truth. Because we will sometimes drink from any river, but Christ is asking us to drink from the river of Jesus Christ. And that's what we do as we take communion here today. We are remembering him. We have that discipline of remembrance so that we could delight more and more in him. I want to close <clears throat> with this one story. Uh, I think it really encapsulates a beautiful relationship. This one person shared about her, about the special relationship that she remembered about her grandparents. And she writes this, my grandparents were married for over a half century. And, we pl and they played their own special game from the time that they had met each other. 
And the goal of their game was to write the word smiley in a surprise place for, other, for the other to find. So they took turns leaving smiley around the house. And as soon as one of them discovered it, it was their turn to hide it once more. They dragged smiley with their fingers through the sugar and flour containers to wait whoever was preparing the next meal. They smeared it in the dew on the window, overlooking the patty. Smiley was written in the steam left on the mirror after a hot shower, where it would reappear bath after bath. And at one point, my grandmother even unrolled an entire roll of toilet paper to leave Smiley on the very last sheets. There was no place, no end to the places where Smiley would pop up. And this woman, she confesses, it took me a long time before I was able to fully appreciate my grandparents' game because skepticism had kept me from believing in true love, one that's pure and enduring. However, I never doubted my grandparents' love for each other. They had it down pat. But life took a dark turn. Her grandmother had breast cancer. And eventually, it took away her life. One day, what we all dreaded finally happened. Grandma was gone, smiling. It was scrawled in yellow on the pink ribbons on my grandmother's funeral bouquet. As a crowd thinned, and as the last mourners turned to leave, my aunts, uncles, other family members came forward and gathered around Grandma one last time. Grandpa stepped up, and he began to sing to her. And as he sang to her, that word smiley came to my mind. Smiley, see how much I love you. <clears throat> and uh, the reason why I share this story it's because that's what Christ is doing with us every single day. And that's what he does with us as we take communion. That's what he does with us. When sometimes we drink from the wrong river, he still says, see how much I love you. And he's instilling with us now the beautiful capacity to say, Jesus, see how much I love you. He loves us. He's a lover of our souls. Let's pray. <clears throat> As we pray together, just for maybe 30 seconds, just in your own words, in your mind, no matter where you've been, what you've been through, Christ knows you. He accepts you as you are, but he does not want to leave you as you are. He wants you to drink from him. Just tell him, God, I love you. God, I love you, I want to love you more. And he'll say, see how much I love you. Just pray to him for a little bit. Lord, we thank you for your deep love for us. Thank you that you are the lover of our souls, and it's not just in word, but it's in deed. We thank you that you love to invite anybody to worship you. We thank you that you do confront our worship, uh, because sometimes we're prone to worship the wrong things, uh, to be satisfied with the wrong well. Lord, we thank you that you show us 
than in you, that you are the one that satisfies. Now, this doesn't mean that um, we can't love our family. It doesn't mean that we cannot take pleasure in the things that we have in this world. But the script is flipped. Rather than seeking ultimate satisfaction in these things, now with our family, we love them. Because uh, we want to show the love of Christ to them. Because we see your love through those relationships. As we have our goods, as we have these things in this world, material goods, we don't want to try to find ultimate satisfaction in them. But we want to use these things to love you and to love this world. So thank you for how much you love us. We want to love you more. Be glorified. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.